in a retreat such as this, we give ourselves the precious opportunity to discover this precious body, the way things are, the nature of reality, not theoretically, not through ideas and concepts or through reading or from somebody else's uh, talking about it, but the instructions and most of what we direct and guide you towards is to your own experience of how things are. And it's through this practice that we do of mindful awareness of this bare attention to our moment-to-moment experience that we go through different and deepening layers and levels of this mind and body. We get to see firsthand, very directly, the elemental way that things are, very pre-verbal, pre-conceptually, we discover for ourselves. And we begin to answer the questions that many have asked from time immemorial. And we ourselves ask, and which is why for each one of us in different ways, in our own unique ways that we're here. Because in one way or another, we've asked the question, what is the true nature of this being human, this precious birth? How can we awaken to that so that we can align ourselves with the truth of that? And then we can align ourselves with our true and highest potential. So there comes a time for each one of us in different ways when, as Michelle mentioned last night, we come and see for ourselves, like the Buddha said, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. When it's no longer satisfying to know it from another place. We may be inspired by other teachers or teachings or readings or places where we've felt it to be very sacred but there comes a time when we see that um, gazing at the moon, we lose the pearl in our own hands. And so this is a time now for us to discover what that truth is, what that pearl is in our own hearts, in our own hands. Scientists are now saying that each one of us is like a living hologram of the entire universe. And the Buddha said this more than 2,500 years ago. In this fathom-long body, the whole of the universe can be discovered. So that's what we're in the midst of here. We're in the midst of that discovery, that very direct discovery of the truth of how things are. And it's helpful to have that perspective that it is a discovery. And it's helpful to have even that as an intention to discover how things are. Because then whatever arises, that is the discovery. We allow ourselves to unfold, to open, and to discover whatever is there. So that in that discovery, whatever unfolds itself can be an aha, this is what's happening. 
this is the truth of the unfoldment of this body-mind continuum instead of the usual response we have of, oh no, I can't take this, and we close down again. So how can our response be that kind of aha? How can that, how can it be an awakening for us rather than a closing down and and again falling asleep into that um, samsaric (coughs) ignorance? So usually by this time of the retreat, when the usual layers of distractions and the habitual patterns have weakened somewhat, other layers come more to the forefront of our attention, and they get to be very intense. And there can be an onslaught of various kinds of visitors to the mind, knocking very rudely or very seductively at the door of our heart and of our minds. And these uh, visitors are categorized in the Buddhist teaching as the five hindrances. And sometimes you hear them spoken of as the defilements. But I'll speak about them tonight, the five hindrances. And I'd like to um, emphasize with the five hindrances mindful awareness of them. So these five hindrances are categorized as sloth and torpor is the first one, doubt, aversion, restlessness, and attachment. Those are the five. When these um, five hindrances come into view very clearly and they're uh, intense in our experience, we tend to think, oh, my practice isn't going well. I'm really going downhill. But on the other hand, um, and in just the opposite way, usually we see as spiritual friends to you that the practice is going very well when these hindrances come up, when we get to see them so clearly. Because through the quality of mindfulness, through the strength of mindfulness, and because we're less distracted, these... uh, hindrances come into clearer view. And mindfulness begins to function like a microscope, a very powerful microscope, like an electron microscope. And there's a very powerful magnification of these hindrances. And so uh, it becomes very, very big to us in our experience. Through this magnifying lens of mindfulness, we experience very intimately and very clearly facets of being human that are very difficult to face, very overwhelming, very hard to be honest about. And it's easy to close down to them because they're so challenging. They're called hindrances because when we're not mindful of them, and that's a very qualifying phrase, when we're not mindful of them, they hinder our ability to experience life wisely, to experience the present moment wisely, when we're not mindful of them. However, when mindful awareness is present with these hindrances, 
we begin to recognize them more clearly without getting caught in them. We recognize their unfolding and how they unfold their particular characteristics of how they are experienced at a preconceptual level almost. We begin to see how the mind works and not be afraid of it. We begin to get more familiar with the terrain of those what we call dark places in the heart and the mind. And we get to be more courageously honest with how things are and that it gets to be more and more okay for these places to unfold. Because in a way, sometimes I see it metaphorically, that um, they want to be freed. And through ignorance and delusion and not seeing them clearly, they can't get freed. So from that honesty, that clarity, and that truthfulness that mindfulness brings to these um, difficult and challenging forces of the mind, we can begin to correct the distortions of how life is experienced. The Buddha said, the mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. The mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is shining. And so with mindfulness, we we begin to see through more deeply, more clearly, through these dark forces, through these layers. And we begin to experience that shining nature through seeing life as it really is. So we correct the distortions of seeing, uh, experiencing life through these hindrances without mindfulness. And then we're able to cultivate the goodness of the heart, the goodness of the mind, and use that for the benefit of all beings in this world. Then, no matter what happens outside of us, in this world. Nothing can make us confused or sorrowful. And this is how it is in a very gradual way as we do this practice. So when these visiting forces begin to open, when they begin to unfold themselves, when they begin to display themselves, it takes this kind of courageous honesty to make them conscious, to bring this conscious, awareness, this mindful awareness to them. Because if that doesn't happen, when we don't make them conscious, when we're not aware of them, they tend to control us unconsciously. Menindra used to say, uh, one of our teachers, first teachers, used to say to me that when mindfulness is there, it illuminates the field of consciousness. And it's like a light. And when there is light, there can be no darkness because it dispels the darkness. And so when we bring mindfulness to the terrain of our hearts and minds, we, uh, those dark forces begin to be more known to us. And in a way, they're dispelled because we see them 
for what they really are very deeply and clearly. It's very hard to open to these places, as we all know, and, and all of us as spiritual guides and friends to you know, um, being on this path for a long, long time. And still, for each one of us, learning how to be more and more courageous about opening to dukkha, to suffering. But it, it becomes very satisfying, in a way, very fulfilling to be able to open and to face and to see more deeply what's going on. This is from uh, the Book of Hours, Writings of Rilke, translated by Anita Barros and Joanna Macy. I love the dark hours of my being, my mind, deepens into them. There I can find, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and then understood. I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. that really sums up for me that very last part, a, that sense of fulfillment of the opening and letting that whatever it is, those dark places be exposed so the light of mindfulness can go there and see more deeply into its true nature. When we know how to work skillfully with each of these hindrances, they can be used as an opportunity to awaken. So it's really important to reframe our understanding of working with these hindrances. It's important, and I'll try to mention as I go through each one, that when we begin, as soon as we recognize, we begin to recognize that we are working with a particular hindrance, that we reframe our understanding of that experience. Because our habitual response to opening to something like that is, oh no, I'm not doing the practice right, or this shouldn't be happening, or I don't want to be here. But if we can reframe it to, this is the very place where awakening can happen. This is the very place for liberation then this is a wise and skillful thing to do. When I was um, doing some more reading about the five hindrances, something very uh, obvious to me came out that I, I never mentioned before when I gave a hindrance talk in that the five hindrances are specifically mentioned in the four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha spoke about, and they're specifically mentioned in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the objects of mind. And to me, it only this rediscovery only accentuated this understanding of reframing that 
this is the very place for us to do our practice on these very five hindrances. So reframing our understanding of them. Don Juana, the shaman of Carlos Castaneda, and um, in one of his teachings to him, said, ordinary people experience life as a series of blessings and curses. But a spiritual warrior sees all of life as an opportunity to awaken. And, I mean, if we're truthful with ourselves, the hindrances are pretty much a big part of life. <laughs> so, I mean, why not use them instead of using all this energy, trying to cover them up, avoid them, change them, or whatever? You know, why not develop a mindfulness with them? So we can awaken with them and not need to um, see them as a curse. So as I go through each one of them, there are two ways that I may point out, either both or one of the two ways, which we can work with them. The first one uh, is to be mindful of them. This is the very first way that's always suggested in all the texts and the writings of the Buddha, to be mindful of them. And the second way to work with each hindrances is to weaken sometimes their strength, because sometimes they're so overpowering that it's very hard to work with them with that full of a force. So we might have to cultivate its opposite in order to balance uh, working with them out. So the first hindrance is sloth and torpor. And um, in the text, there, they are two different things. The description of sloth and torpor are two distinctive descriptions of sloth and then of torpor. I just happened to see uh, recently a nature program about a sloth. <laughs> I wonder if anyone else saw it. A sloth sleeps 20 hours a day. <laughs> it's sort of, it's how you feel when, you know, when you get here at first. Um, <laughs> we're that tired. So the first thing to do when sloth and torpor is there is to recognize its presence. And this is one of the hardest things to do with sloth and torpor, mainly because we don't have very much energy even to recognize the first reason. And the second reason is we have a habitual tendency not to do anything about it, to just go with it and act it out. And so it might help to know what are the characteristics or the manifestations of sloth and torpor. So these are some these are some uh, descriptions that I got from the text from the Abhidhamma. The uh, description of sloth. And just try to think about your own, when you've uh, you know, had sleepiness or dullness, how it feels in a very visceral way. In a very visceral way, it feels unwieldy, unworkable, rigid, sluggish. 
It feels like you're slogging through mud, which was not part of the text, but that's what it feels like, <laughs> slogging through mud. And it's interesting to me that, you know, through all the years, um, learning this mindfulness practice and teaching this mindfulness practice, it's been so obvious what to do with, with sloth and torpor, but you're just not alert enough to do it. You know, it took me a lot of years mm -hmm. before I could say, oh, I could be mindful with this instead of acting it out and falling asleep with it. Um, torpor is described as inactivity, inertness, incapability, drowsiness, nodding, sleepiness. Those are the six descriptions out of the text. I read a, um, one of the suttas recently where the Buddha, uh, with his omniscient eye, saw his chief disciple who was sitting in meditation, nodding, and this chief disciple was Moggallana. And so he went to Moggallana and he said, Moggallana, are you nodding? <laughs> are you nodding, Moggallana? Are you nodding? It made me so, it made me feel so good to read that. <laughs> and Moggallana said, yes, venerable sir, I am nodding. And so the, the Buddha went on to uh, help him to become more mindful and alert with, with the practice there. It's really challenging to be, to recognize when these, uh, uh, when sloth and torpor are there. And so the very thing that you have to remind yourself of is to, this is the very place to practice. And instead of, oh, I can't practice now because I'm too tired. It's really possible to be mindful of sloth and torpor. And it's interesting that when you bring the energy of mindfulness to sloth and torpor, sometimes it can bring just the right amount of energy to keep you alert in that moment. In the last, um, last fall, I was sitting for six weeks from September to November, and uh, I was sitting with a lot of yogis at IMS, and uh, Joseph and, and Michelle and Sharon were teaching. I think Sharon was teaching then. And I was supposed to teach the second six weeks. And so when I got there, of course, I had to do a lot in order to get there. And I went in to, to sit, and it's wonderful to be a yogi. And so I sat right in the middle, kind of, um, you know, to one side with the women and in the middle of the women. And because uh, I was very tired, I could hardly hold my body up. I, I, I was really, I was having that meditator sway, you know. <laughs> and it was my whole body, and finally it just got to be the nodding, just my head. And it was really hard for me to keep even my body erect. I was so tired. And I thought, I have a girlfriend who's Vietnamese, and she had told a story of herself once when she was nodding off, and she said that um, 
it was bad advertisement for the Buddha's teachings. <laughs> so, so I thought of her, right? I thought of what she said. I said, oh, this is bad advertisement for the, for the Buddha's teachings, so I better go where the yogis can't see me. So I went to the back, and I even sat in a chair so I could um, sit erect, but it made me fall asleep all the more, you know, and I, then I was afraid that the bell would ring and everybody would turn around and see me all slumped in the chair. So, uh, so then I thought, uh, duh, maybe I can be mindful of the nodding. You know, after all, there's some movement going on. There's a bump, you know. So I started to be mindful of the head going down. And then my whole practice for several days was watching the head go down and come back up. And go down and come back up. And you can get really mindful doing that. I mean, when that's the only object of attention, that's all you got. So use it. And if you don't, then, you know, it just kind of is a vicious cycle. Usually there's three causes for sleepiness. And in the first part of a retreat, as what I was experiencing, when we come into a retreat and we're just so tired from life and we haven't had enough sleep because we've had to prepare so hard to get there, um, it's a tiredness of life that we bring in to, with us to the hall. And it's, it just takes patience and moment-to-moment um, -moment mindfulness with it. And it, it doesn't take too long before that balances out some things to do when that's happening, because some of us may still be experiencing that now, to do very simple things, like just open the eyes and look, look at a light, you know. I don't like to say that, because if you open your eyes, you might see me nodding up here. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you open your eyes and look at a light, or even look with your eyes downcast, that little bit of energy that comes into the body can be really helpful. And in the text it says to pull the ears. You know, mm -hmm. there's um, several, maybe several reasons why, but when you look at the Buddha's ears, <laughs> you know, that might not be very nice to say, but um, that could have been of many lifetimes. You know, so. Pull the ears. You can sit up straight a little bit more, you know, take one deep, quiet, quiet breath. Sometimes you can stand up, and it really helps to stand up. I haven't seen or heard of one person fall down yet when they were doing the practice standing up. And that really helps because there's, you know, some alertness that has to come with, with that. I think Michelle has. <laughs> okay. Um, one, one thing that helps sometimes is to recollect your death and how precious this time is. And sometimes what I say to myself is, I may never have an opportunity to practice again, and this time is really precious. Many times when I reported to Upandita, he would say to me in one way or another, make every moment count. And that's even being mindful of sloth and torpor. So, 
being mindful, recognizing what's going on, recognize the, you know, the, the unique characteristics of the subjective experience of sloth and torpor. You know, does it feel heavy in the body, light? Is, it, uh, is there a dullness? Um, be with, with those things that are very, you know, not thinking about it, but in a very bare attention direct way. Recognize what's going on. Refrain from acting it out. You know, um, sometimes you have to have a graceful surrender and take a nap. But most of the time we can just be mindful with it. And reframe your understanding. This is the very place to be mindful. Not, well, I can't do the practice now because I'm too sleepy. It's the very place for mindfulness to take place. The second hindrance is skeptical doubt. And um, it's characterized as a pond stirred up and very muddy, or like the mind, the pond of the mind stirred up, very muddy. And the way it's manifested in, in our subjective experience is being perplexed or confused sometimes, indecisive. Um, we might not know, should I take a walk or should I sit? Should I go have a cup of tea? Or, you know, should I do, do something else? It's kind of this, this mind that's going every which way. A bit of restlessness might be uh, interwoven in there. We, if we're sitting, we don't know sometimes, where should my attention be? Should it be here? Should it be someplace else? I don't know what to do. And sometimes when we can just recognize that, it's just doubt. Just the, the simple recognition of it in that moment helps us to be more present. It actually dispels the doubt when we recognize what's going on in that moment. Sometimes it's called skeptical doubt. We get really uh, cynical about what's going on. We might say, I don't know about this practice. You know, I don't know about this letting go. What's this all about? They, it sounds so easy, but it's so hard to do. And we might begin to consider other possibilities. You know, or maybe I should go and do this practice. Maybe I should, um, I should, maybe I should go, um, you know, go to the movies instead. You know, we're always considering another possibility. I, I hear many possibilities. I don't want to say them. It might embarrass you. I <laughs> think I'm picking on you. Um, so the mind is going every which way, uh, and we can't settle into something. There's not this ability for us to connect with something and to sustain our attention with it. And that's when doubt is there. This is from that very uh, wonderful philosopher, Woody Allen. (laughs) I am plagued with doubts. What if everything is really an illusion and nothing exists? In that case, I definitely overpaid for my carpet. (laughs) (laughs) So we're always considering other possibilities. Sometimes doubt is manifested as a lack of faith in ourselves, in the practice, in the teachings, in the teacher. 
And it's helpful to, um, to recognize or to identify which one it is. Most of the time, for me, it's lack of faith in, or confidence in my own ability to do the practice when it gets hard. I don't usually have doubt. I don't have doubt at all in the teachings of the Buddha. Um, but lack of confidence, lack of faith in myself, in my own ability manifests quite a bit. And when, as soon as I recognize it, it comes as a really uh, liberation to me in the moment. It's like, oh, when I recognize it, it's like in that moment, mindfulness on doubt liberates the doubt. There is no more doubt in that moment. And it feels subjectively different every time. And so it's helpful to investigate how does doubt, how is that subjectively sensed in your experience? For me, sometimes it feels like it's a broken, I'm a broken piece of glass. And, you know, nothing's coming together and the energy is dispersing all over the place. And it's really helpful for me to come to the body awareness of it rather than stay with all the thoughts about it because it's very difficult to be mindful when you get, when you get lost in the thinking process. And it's easier to be mindful of what's more tangible. So coming back to the body of what can be more tangible, what mindfulness can land on in a clearer way is really helpful. So whenever you're experiencing some kind of doubt and, and you recognize it, as soon as you recognize it as doubt, uh, bring your attention into the body or into whatever emotional um, sense there is. Emotion is somewhere between the body and mind sometimes. And feel it as if you were feeling a weather pattern or feeling something very elemental the earth element, the air element, the fire element, the heat and coolness of it, the hardness and softness of it, the movement, the vibration of it. Feeling it on that level, experiencing it on that level, helps to really dispel the doubt. Doubt is caused by a lack of investigation. And when we're able to investigate what's really going on, pre-verbally, pre-conceptually, in the way I just talked about, it dispels the doubt in that moment. What happens is when you're really into your practice and something arises in the field of attention and mindfulness comes to meet it, or... um, What happens is it feels like mindfulness can't meet it, or can't touch it, or land on it. And and it's like it's very slippery, and it just stays on the top, or falls away. And so sometimes we just need a little more energy to be with the experience. A little more energy of connecting and sustaining to whatever is happening in the moment. And that connecting and sustaining brings that intimacy of, um, of investigation. And when there is investigation, then there is no doubt. 
So recognizing what's happening, recognizing sometimes you might not have to um, note every single elemental experience, but you notice it very clearly. And your note, your, your silent mental notation may simply be, oh, it's just doubt, just doubt. And see what happens. It oftentimes has the uh, feeling of settling. As soon as that recognition is made, there is a settling in the body, in the mind. If you can be with it long enough, you'll notice what happens. So, um, another way to, to help when there's doubt is to just stay. If the mind is all over the place, take one thing, like take your primary anchor, the breath, and be, make an intention to be with the breath as much as you can from the beginning, the middle, and the end of an in-breath to the beginning, middle, and end of an out-breath. And that really helps because in that time when there is a clarity of what's happening in that moment, then there's no doubt. So that's a way in a moment-to-moment level of dispelling doubt. Usually our doubts are on a grander scale. And if we can bring it to a moment-to-moment practice, the doubt is dispelled when there's clarity of what's happening. And get really curious about what's happening in the moment. Mm. Sometimes, with regard to this um, doubt about my own ability to do the practice, one thing that's been helping me a lot lately is to... Um, I have this little saying to myself now when I can't get through a moment of difficult experience or a day or whatever it is that I'm faced with. I say, for the benefit of all beings, for the benefit of all beings, for the benefit of all beings. And it really helps me to get through that time of difficulty in practice. How that was brought about recently was, um, who reminded me of that is a friend of and neighbor of mine. His name is Buzzy, and he lives right in back of us. And he's a personal trainer. He has a gym at his house, and um, he lives kind of way in back of us. But he offers me as a um, as Donna. Um, working out with me, you know, so he, he wants, he, he does that with my partner, Steve, too. He's got this um, idea of these Buddhists with biceps. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what he calls us. He, he wants us to get, you know, just all buffed up, so, <laughs> but <laughs> he's probably really disappointed in us. In the last uh, retreat, at home in the last one-month retreat that we hold on Maui in August, uh, he said, Kamala, I want to meet you every morning at the driveway, and I want to run with you and, um, you know, to help you to to have more energy during the day. So I said, okay, you know, reluctantly. 
and I said, it's, it's, at, it's after the 5.30 sitting, I'll meet you at 6.30, and he said, okay, really dedicated. And so he, he would meet me out outside of the gate, and we would do a little run-walk, 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 and some of you have been there on that, on that walk on Thompson Road, and there's these little hills and these, you know, flat places and little hills and flat places, and he makes me run up the hill and walk on the fat, flat places, and run up the hill, walk on the fat, flat places. And so we were doing that this one time. It was the first time. And we came to the very last hill, and we had gone back and forth, so it was about two miles. And I'm not in shape, and so I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And so on the last hill, I said, Buzzy, I can't. I, I have to stop. I can't do it anymore. And he said, Kamala, he said, you know all those yogis in there? And I said, yeah. And he said, up to this point, you've done everything for yourself. This hill, you're doing for those yogis. <laughs> so I thought, okay, for the benefit of all beings, for the benefit <laughs> of all beings. <laughs> and I got up the hill. So if it turns you on, try it. You know, Sometimes we can't do it for ourselves, but we can do it for the benefit of all beings. That last little bit of the sit before the bell rings. The third is aversion. And um, this hindrance is really the easiest to recognize. Doubt is, is really hard to recognize. Sloth and torpor, it's challenging because we don't have a lot of energy. But aversion is so easy to recognize. And it's the most, or one of the most painful. It's very painful for me to experience it. It's traditionally described as a boiling hot spring in the text. And so some of the ways that it's manifested in our practice is the not wanting or the not liking mind, a feeling of struggle or resistance, irritation, impatience, rage, fear, extreme terror, it's sometimes experienced as ways like that in striking out or sometimes in closing down. It can be experienced as a kind of guilt, a closing where, where the energy is kind of trapped. Viscerally, in the body or even in the mind, it might be experienced as heat or attention, pressure. And it's really helpful when we're experiencing, as soon as we recognize aversion, to rein the energy in from the storyline that kind of um, is a tornado around aversion, and to bring the energy into the body and to feel what's happening in the body, and to experience it that way, to bring our attention in that way, to recognize what's going on. Recognize what's going on and to reframe uh, or refrain from acting it out. And this sometimes on retreat it's really hard to do because it gets acted out in, um, in subtle ways sometimes where it's difficult to bring the attention to ourselves and the attention goes outward into blame. So refraining from Acting it out means uh, one, one person 
wrote me a note and says, I just can't do this. I, I feel like taking a, a plane to Las Vegas. <laughs> this was in the last retreat. And, um, but I, I remember the signs people talk about in Las Vegas. You must be present to win. So it'll send you back here, you know. So you've <laughs> got to come back anyway and do the practice. So you refrain from acting it out. Sometimes we, we act out in subtle ways, like, um, you know, leaving a note for our neighbor or whoever is moving too much or breathing too loud or snoring or whatever and, you know, saying what we think and signing it metta. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> use all that energy <laughs> to recognize what's going on in our own experience instead of, act, we use that energy a lot to act out. So rein that energy in, recognize what's going on, refrain from acting it out, and reframe our understanding. This is the very place to bring the mindfulness. This is the very place to practice. When we begin to do that, we begin to see more deeply, you know, the deeper characteristics, the more universal characteristics of all of these, and just as an example with aversion, hatred, and all the different forms it takes, when we, when we can recognize deeply what's going on, we begin to see how impermanent it is. We begin to see how impersonal it is. You know, it comes, it arises because of conditions. There's no one deep inside that's saying, come here, aversion. No, there's nobody that's deeming it to be so. It comes out of habit. And it, it also can leave from the habit of mindfulness. So we be- can begin to see much more deeply what's happening if we can use all that energy to recognize what's going on. And for in that recognition, to let what's happening reveal the um, universal characteristics of its impermanence, its impersonal nature. Manindra, we we tell stories on Manindra a lot. (laughs) Um, One time I was with Manindra at home where I used to live in in Maui, this little home in Hali'imaili. And um, I was, he was staying with us for a while, and I was cooking for him at the time. And, of course, Manindra likes certain kinds of foods, and he's pretty particular. And so he would hang around when I was cooking and watch what I was putting in, the, you know, the food. And if you're, you know, if you're a cook and if you're a mother, if you're a cook, you don't like people to be around very much. And so I was always, you know, bumping into him and turning around, and there he'd be, and I'd step on his toe, and um, why don't you put this in, you know, all the Indian spices that he likes, and so I'd try my best. And one time, I, I was getting a little bit irritated, you know, and so I turned around, and there he was, and I just bumped full on into him, and he's shorter than me, little, um, 
you know, brown man with the bald head and shiny skin and white robes, and just can, it, it's kind of easy to, um, you know, he's lighter than me too, and so it's kind of easy for him just to. So he just kind of bumbled back like that, and I, and then he, we we both faced each other, and he said, "Oh, anger is there," <laughs> and and I said. What? And he said, anger is there. And I said, where? <laughs> where? And, uh, and then uh, for a moment I thought, you know, he was going to point to me. But he said, no, anger is there. And he pointed to his heart. And, uh, you know, I really got it that it was so impersonal for him. Anger is there. And then we just stood there and it just, just stood there with him. It was kind of like watching a butterfly go by. <laughs> so what to do with aversion? Um, recognize what's going on. Be with it as closely as you can without getting lost in it. There's a way in which, and, and some of you may be able to experience this, where... Um, there can be mindfulness of any one of these hindrances where there is a sense that one's energy is not lost in the hindrance or in the object of attention, but one's energy is much more settled in mindfulness itself, where one's energy is um, composed within the mindfulness itself. And so the, the, the objects that come and go um, really can be seen as impermanent. And so recognizing, a refrain, refraining from acting out, reframing the, atten- um, the understanding. And sometimes when it gets too overwhelming, though, when we know we're just so identified with what's going on, that we're overwhelmed, we're just too immersed in it. It's really helpful to do some metta practice. And I think it, it's, it's also helpful, um, if this is happening, if you're overwhelmed by it, to touch base with one of us about how you might be able to do the metta practice in relationship to any aversion that you're overwhelmed with. But just in a general, generic sense, um, doing metta practice really helps because it's said that metta is the antidote to fear, to hatred. So this helps. And also, for me, it helps to intentionally turn the mind towards something that's pleasant when, it, when just there's just this overwhelm of unpleasant. And, and so it really helps to sometimes go outside and intentionally notice a bird song, notice hearing, 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 or seeing the beauty of the mountains and noticing, not getting lost in thought about it, but just noticing, seeing, and maybe any pleasant feeling that arises with that. Just as a way of balancing, or um, the eighth factor of enlightenment, chocolate. You know, <laughs> that may help. <laughs> uh, 
So the fourth, and, and maybe the last one I'll be able to get through tonight, is restlessness. And in the, in the text, it's um, sometimes described more completely as restlessness and remorse. So, you know, with remorse, there is that kind of restlessness. There's this, uh, you know, body and mind that's just not settled. And it's why to a to, you know, very um, wise how the Buddha taught, you know, to live in harmony with others. The, the pillar of um, the, the one pillar of the Dhamma, in Sila, living in harmony with life. Because then when we can sit with no remorse, our mind and hearts open more easily. So restlessness feels like anxiety, disquiet in the mind, worry, regret, a kind of inner turmoil. I mean, those are the ways that we might describe it in words. But when restlessness is there, can you bring your attention to how it actually feels viscerally? It's hard because, you know, usually with restlessness there's some kind of aversion too, and we don't want to be there. But if you can bring your attention to recognize it really closely, it's really helpful. And in that moment of recognition of it, in just a moment you see that restlessness is dispelled, and moment to moment, that can happen, the dispelling of it. It sometimes is really gross, you know, it feels like we, need, we want to jump out of our skin sometimes. It happens in those really gross ways, or that, you know, you, any minute now you're going to jump up from your seat and rush to the back of the hall shouting obscenities. <laughs> it, it does, sometimes it can feel like that. Um, so it can be very gross, but Refrain from, refrain from acting that out. Um, and just try to be mindful of what's happening. Sometimes it, it manifests in very subtle ways that we don't recognize right away, like a, the restlessness that goes on in the mind when you know we're writing that book or doing that paper or redecorating the house or um, planning, planning mind. Those are different ways that it manifests. It's a mind that's unsteady, that keeps slipping off the object of attention. It, ca- it just can't stay present with anything. It goes from one thing to another. So once we recognize it, what do we bring our mindfulness to? To this uh, visceral sense of, or feeling of restlessness itself how it might feel in the body. So um, there's a couple of ways we can work with them practically. If I find that if the mind is really restless, it's really helpful to bring the attention to one point in the body. You know, one point like the buttocks um, sitting on the cushion. Or, or just the breath, just being with the breath. And that really helps to settle the mind. If there's a restlessness in the body, a whole 
different sense of what's happening. It helps me to open the attention really wide. And it might be opening the attention to hearing, or opening the eyes even, opening the attention really wide, noticing hearing, hearing, or seeing, seeing. Sometimes it can help if it's, if it's really um, difficult to just go for a long walk, and uh, a long, hour-long walk, sometimes quick. You can be really mindful even by going quickly, and sometimes more mindful by having a quicker pace. So those are the different, um, the four different hindrances, the last one being attachment, and maybe I'll speak about that in one Dharma talk by itself, or somebody will. So there's sloth and torpor, there's uh, doubt, there's aversion, and there's restlessness. And the last one is attachment or desire. And it's really important to remember that these are the very places where freedom can take place. This is the very place where we can do our practice. I'd like to end with this. from Rumi. It's called a guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Treat each guest honorably. It may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.